Amen. You can be seated. As you're uh, doing so, please turn to the book of Ruth. We will finish our Advent series through the book of Ruth this morning, Ruth chapter 4. And as you're turning to the book of Ruth, just a couple of things. Number one, I want to remind everybody that we did collect our uh, Christmas offering last Sunday, but we're not going to uh, announce that until January 8th, so that's in two weeks, which means you still have, if you have not given yet for the annual Christmas offering, there's still time to do so. You can give in the offering box or you can give online. Also want to say, uh, as many have said already, and we've shared even through Thanksgiving and Advent, uh, just on behalf of Pastor Kevin and myself and all of the elders, how uh, grateful we are for Christ Community Church. Uh, we could spend all morning going through uh, and, and giving thanks to each person, recognizing each person who deserves it, from those who serve in children's ministry, to youth ministry, to teaching adult classes, music ministry, uh, those who care for the building, um, all of, you know, we're, we are a body, we are a family, and so uh, just we want to say thank you and that we love you all, and uh, Merry Christmas. This is our last Sunday for 2022. Even as we celebrate Christmas, next Sunday will be January 1st. And I know that you'll all be here. You may be a little sleepy, but we'll worship the risen Lord New Year's Day as well. Our text this morning for Christmas 2022, again, we'll finish the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. This is what the Holy Spirit says. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashan, Nashan fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would Bless your word that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth. We pray, our Father, in the name of your incarnate Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. I had never been more surprised in my life. We were in the ultrasound room and we were staring at the screen, and the ultrasound tech said, it's a girl. Now, you're probably like, how can you be that surprised, right? Whenever a woman is pregnant, there are only two options, right? It's either a boy or it's a girl. So to be shocked at one or the other is kind of silly, but, and that's fair, but if you've, if you've been with us here, church, for any length of time, you know that this was our fourth child and our first three are boys, so we had just accepted that we were an all-boy family. just seemed like that was what the Lord was uh, doing with us, and, but that all changed that day, obviously, and the Lord saw us saw it fit to give us two more girls, so it doesn't seem that shocking anymore, but 
you know, even as I think back on that day, and we all do that, you can think of times in your lives, everyone has these times in our lives where, we, you know, you have a vivid memory of a situation, and that one is seared in my brain, thinking back and learning of little Sophia in her mother's womb, and I remember, I can still feel that feeling of being surprised by that baby. Well, as we come to the end of the book of Ruth on this Christmas morning, this story also ends with a surprise about a baby. And any first-time reader of the book of Ruth, as you're reading through the story, would assume that this is a simple love story between a man and a woman in the ancient Near East, ancient Israel. But the twist at the end of the book of Ruth, and we got a, a little glimpse of it last night, as Pastor Kevin preached to verse 17, the twist at the end of Ruth is that Ruth and Boaz have a son who has a son who has a son whose name is King David. And this simple love story we come to learn is actually part of a much grander story. Years later, Yahweh would make a covenant with King David and Yahweh would tell King David that his true son would sit on David's throne forever. And the New Testament reveals to us that that covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the son of David. Pastor Brett said it just moments ago. He was born in a manger, but he now sits on a throne. Jesus for, for today and for the last 2,000 years, has been sitting on the throne of David. Don't confuse that. Jesus isn't going to sit on David's throne in the future. Jesus has been sitting on David's throne for 2,000 years. You see, the New Testament opens up, just like the book of Ruth ends, the New Testament opens up with a surprise about a baby. Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 uh, begins much like Ruth ends. In fact, what we just read from the book of Ruth, these four verses, fit almost word for word inside Matthew's genealogy. And even though we may not recognize it at first, the genealogies in Ruth and in Matthew actually teach us quite a bit about Christmas. After all, Christmas is the celebration of the incarnation of the Son of God. And so what we're going to see this morning as we look at the genealogy in Ruth and, and maybe even a little bit at Matthew's genealogy as it expands Ruth's genealogy is this. This is our sermon summary for this morning. Christmas is good news for sinners about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Christmas is good news for sinners about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take that sentence and kind of break it down piece by piece so that we may come adore Christ the Lord. And we may find that this baby just may surprise us this morning as well. First, Christmas is good news. This is the first piece of our sermon summary. Christmas is good news. Tim Keller notes that the story of Jesus doesn't start with once upon a time. The story of Jesus starts with a genealogy in Matthew's gospel. In fact, Luke also has a genealogy near the beginning of his gospel. 
So the story of Jesus doesn't start with once upon a time because that's how fairy tales start. And the story of Jesus is not a fairy tale. No, the story of Jesus begins with a genealogy because the story of Jesus is history. The person and work of Jesus of Nazareth is history. Matthew's genealogy takes us back to Abraham. Luke's genealogy takes us all the way back to Adam. And even though to us, these genealogies may look like a boring list of Hebrew names, in the ancient Near East and in the first century, genealogies were not viewed that way. Genealogies were actual family lines. Genealogies are documented history. So much like you might go to Ancestry.com to find out about your family history, the genealogies in Scripture give us the family history of Jesus. And so the genealogies show us that the gospel is good news. The gospel is not good advice. This is important. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. Because you'll have those who would call themselves progressive Christians or liberal Christians. We're talking theology here. Don't don't get distracted with politics right now as I'm saying this. Liberal theology, so they don't believe in the supernatural, that kind of thing. Progressive Christians will say, you know, it doesn't really matter whether Jesus actually lived or not. You see, what matters is that we follow the moral example of Jesus. And so the life of Jesus has impact because we're all better people because we follow the moral example of Jesus. Now, some of you, I would hope all of you, but some of you would react and say, well, of course, of course I don't believe that. I believe that Jesus actually lived. I believe that Jesus actually died. I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. Yet, you live as if Jesus is a functional fairy tale. You may assent to the facts about Jesus, but you don't actually trust him. You don't actually trust him, and it shows with your life you live as if Jesus is a fairy tale. You live like he's not real. When you say that you believe in Jesus, but you live in perpetual unrepentant sin, you're treating Jesus like he's just a fairy tale. When you don't make church a priority for you and your family, you're treating Jesus like he's just a fairy tale. When you don't give, you're treating Jesus like he's just a fairy tale. It's not real. It doesn't matter. While you may reject progressive Christianity on paper, when you live in disobedience to Scripture, you are functioning as if it really doesn't matter whether Jesus actually lived or not. But the genealogies won't allow that. No, the genealogies reveal to us that Christmas is good news. Christmas is the good news that the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 
We just confessed it in the Nicene Creed. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Jesus is God incarnate. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And you know what else? The genealogies reveal to us that we can't save ourselves. The gospel, Tim Keller says this, the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. The genealogies reveal to us that God had to get down in the mud with us to lift us up from Adam's fall. You see, if the story of Jesus is treated like a fairy tale, you're going to end up in one of two places. Either you're going to be self-righteous, you're going to be arrogant, you're going to be prideful because you're going to genuinely believe that you are righteous enough before God on your own. If the story of Jesus is a fairy tale, that means you got to be good enough. And that means that you're in danger of thinking that you're good enough. In which case, your heart becomes even more dragonish with each passing day. That's one option. Or the other option is that you're going to be keenly understand that you are not righteous enough and you're going to wallow in despair because you think you have to be good enough and you know that you can't be good enough. But you know what? The incarnation of Jesus Christ eviscerates both of those dangerous ditches because it shows us that we are so sinful that God had to step in and save us himself, but also that God loves us so much that he was willing to step in and save us himself. These genealogies are good news. And by the way, they're, they're good news that we can trust. You know, some people look at Matthew and Luke's genealogies and they see differences. They see discrepancies. And their response is, ah, see, I got you. Scripture is untrustworthy because, look, they say different things. The genealogies are different. Of course, this is a misunderstanding of what's going on in these genealogies. First of all, Matthew and Luke are writing their genealogies with two different goals. Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam because Luke's thrust is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Savior of the whole world, not just Israel. Jesus didn't come just to save Israel. Jesus came to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so Luke takes us all the way back to Adam to say Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus has come to right Adam's wrong. Matthew's genealogy, on the other hand, goes back to Abraham because Matthew's point is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. Everything given under the Old Covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Every single promise given in the Old Testament is fulfilled by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Every single one. So that's the first thing. Secondly, what people fail to understand, again, because we're reading with our modern Western eyes, is that ancient genealogies were always selective in the way they presented themselves. We have this, we talked about this last week, this post-enlightenment 
hermeneutic. We think we should read everything, and everything we read is super literalistic. And that's just not how people in the ancient Near East wrote or read. That's not how they saw the Bible. For example, we read from Ruth's genealogy. It says the word father. Did you notice that? Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram. That word fathered is the Hebrew word yalad. It means to bear, to bring forth, to beget, to engender. In the, um, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, the Greek word that's, that's translated from yalad is the Greek word ganao. It means, it's like where we get the word generations from. So this is the generation of so-and-so. He generated him who generated him who generated him. And so the point in these genealogies, sometimes it it doesn't necessarily mean that so-and-so was literally the father of so-and-so. It means they came from their line. They might be the grandfather. They might be the great-grandfather. And that's why you'll see some differences in some of the genealogies in the Bible. Uh, Let me give you an example. I am the son of Randy Loganow. Randy Loganow is the son of Al Loganow. So it is not inaccurate to say that I am from Al Loganow. Right? I'm from his line. And, and the, a similar thing happens in Scripture. The discrepancies in these genealogies are not historical inaccuracies. Ancient cultures just didn't read things the way that we read things all the time. And as Pastor Kevin reminded us last night, everything in the Bible, there's nothing in the Bible that the original audience wouldn't have understood. We're the ones who have to do the extra work to understand things. So they would have got what was going on in these genealogies. We have to work hard. And so this is a healthy reminder for us not to fall into what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Basically, We think that we're smarter than any people who've ever lived because we have technology and medicine and all this. People today are no smarter than the ancient people. We may have modern technology. We may have this or that. Man, some of the most brilliant minds who have ever lived never saw an iPhone. I mean, you think about about the guys who didn't even write Scripture, right? We're not even going to talk about Paul or... Peter, whoever, I mean, think about the minds of, of men like John Calvin, you know, and Augustine. And I mean, we're not smarter than them. We just think we are, man. So here's the thing. If you find something in the Bible that doesn't make sense to you, or if you find something in the Bible that seems like an error, pause for a minute and consider that maybe somebody else in the last 2,000 years have noticed this as well, and maybe they've thought about it too. Church history must be our companion as we study God's Word. This is why we do a historical reading every Sunday, because the creeds, the confessions, the catechisms shed light on Scripture for us as godly men have contemplated and meditated on the Bible for multiple millennia. So if you find something you don't understand, you know, do a little research. But now here's the, here's the more important one, because this is the one I fear that we are more likely to fall into. If you find something in Scripture that you don't agree with, it's you that needs to change, not Scripture. 
we cannot bend the word of God to fit our modern sensibilities. The Bible is the eternal, inerrant, inspired word of God. It never changes. It's always perfect. And you don't even think the same way you did five years ago. So who must be in submission to whom? You need to change, not the Bible. So trust God's word. Trust God's word, man. Trust it primarily because it reveals the good news. This is where we find the good news of Jesus. Like these genealogies are all about Jesus, the whole Bible is all about Jesus. It's all about the good news of Jesus. It's not a fairy tale. It's history. It's not good advice. It's good news. That's the first thing, is that Christmas is good news. Secondly, Christmas is good news for sinners. Christmas isn't just good news. Christmas is good news for sinners. Man, you read through Jesus' family tree. If you haven't done it in a while, we just, like I said, there's a, a small genealogy here in Ruth. If you haven't read Matthew's genealogy in a while, today, sometime this week, go ahead and read Matthew's genealogy, the first 17 or so verses of the Gospel of Matthew. And you'll see that Jesus' family tree is full of some dirty, rotten scoundrels. Now, this is not limited to, but it is typified by the five women who are named in Matthew's genealogy. It's not limited to them. But man, if you want a clear picture for how scandalous the genealogy of Jesus is, notice the five women who are named in Matthew's genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the fourth is the, right, the wife of Uriah, her name's Bathsheba, and the fifth one is Mary. Let's think about this for a minute. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute so that she could be impregnated by her father-in-law. Classy situation. Rahab actually was a prostitute. She wasn't pretending. Ruth was a Moabite. As we've gone through the book of Ruth, we've seen what that means to be a Moabite, to be covenantally cursed by God because they were a people who are born out of incest. Bathsheba is called the wife of Uriah in Matthew's genealogy because King David took her from Uriah, got her pregnant, and then murdered Uriah. Now we know our... our Roman Catholic neighbors get confused about Mary, don't they? Mary was a sinner. Now, Mary, what's ironic is that Mary was a sinner, but the, the scandal that she was famous for wasn't sin, actually, right? Mary was pregnant before she was married. We know, Scripture reveals to us that, that she was conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? But, but in, in Nazareth, in Galilee, she was known as the woman who was pregnant before she was married. She was viewed as a cultural dissident. She was bad news. This list would have been shocking to a first century audience. This would have been shocking. It would have been shocking because women were never included in genealogies. And this is, this is hard for us to understand because of Modern, how, how much improvement, honestly, we've had in, you know, how women are treated throughout the history of the world. I can't emphasize this enough, church. Women were not viewed as full people in the first century. God's people were radical 
in that they viewed women as image bearers. Because most ancient cultures, patriarchal ancient cultures, did not view women as full human beings. They could not legally own property. And these women are included in the genealogies. These are the mothers of Jesus. And, and so it's radical enough that they're included. And then we consider, you know, these, these, these women weren't, were doing some things they shouldn't have been doing, right? I mean, you know, not to get too graphic on Christmas for you. But, uh, you know, these, uh, these, these women weren't teaching kids Sunday school at Christ Community Church. You know, they come from some radical places, but God saves them. He includes them in his family. These women are of ill report, we could say, right? That's fair enough. And you know what? Now, now let's be honest. We talked about the, the, the five women. That doesn't even scratch the surface of all the sin committed by the men on this list. We already mentioned King David, the man who is called the man after God's own heart who stole a man's wife, got her pregnant, and murdered the man. Gee whiz. Make you uncomfortable, you think about it. You know what the point, or one of the points, is that Jesus' family is full of sinners. And that's really good news for you and me. Christmas is good news for sinners because Jesus came in the incarnation. As we just confessed in the Nicene Creed, for us and for our salvation. That's why Jesus came. We need salvation because we have sinned against the one true holy God. And the just condemnation for our sin is eternal conscious punishment in hell. Salvation through Jesus is inaugurated by his birth, but it is continued as he lived without sin. Jesus lived without sin. Jesus never sinned in word, thought, or deed. Jesus never sinned by what he had done or by what he had left undone. Not even one time. And then Jesus died. Jesus died on the cross bearing God's wrath for our sin. Church, this is the true surprise of Christmas. This is the reason Jesus was born, to die. Christmas does not end with the manger. Christmas must lead us to the cross because the goal of the incarnation was the substitutionary death of the Son of God in the place of the elect. This is good news for sinners because Sin must be atoned for. God is holy. God cannot leave sin unpunished. God would be unjust if he were to just sweep it under the rug. And if he were unjust, he could not be God. Because that's true, everyone's sins, every person who has ever lived in the history of the world their sins will be atoned for, paid for in one of two places. Either in hell for eternity or on the cross of Jesus Christ. This is good news for sinners like you and me because it means that even we can be in Jesus' family. No sin is too small 
that it doesn't deserve hell. Every sin rightly deserves eternal hell. Yet no sin is too great to keep you from the grace of Jesus. That's what grace means. It means unmerited favor. It means you don't deserve it, but in Jesus you get it anyway. It means we get what we don't deserve. Christmas is good news for sinners. So we've seen that Christmas is good news. We have seen that Christmas is good news for sinners. And finally, Christmas is good news for sinners, and it's, it's got context. It's not just generic good news, right? It's not just like peace on earth and goodwill to men, whatever that means to you. Christmas is good news for sinners because it's about the kingdom of Jesus. That's why it's good news for sinners. The surprise at the, uh, that, that changes everything at the end of the book of Ruth is that Ruth and Boaz get married and their baby has a baby who has a baby. And in a stroke of literary and theological genius, the final verse in the book of Ruth exclaims, Jesse fathered David. It's important, again, not to get, get too off track here, but we noted sometime in the last month that the book of Ruth in Jesus' Bible wasn't next to the book of Judges, right? It was with the Psalms and some other places. And we put it next to Judges because it takes place in the time of Judges. But, see, the re- one of the reasons why it doesn't fit in a literary way is because when we, when we come to Judges and Ruth, we don't know who David is yet, you know, if you're just reading through the story. But when Ruth is near the back, you've already gone through the story of David, and then you come to this love story, and you see, oh, wait a minute, something's going on here. This is part of David's family, the king. This love story is actually a royal love story. Man, and it's like the sixth sense. Once you learn the ending, you can never read the story the same way again. It changes. You see, you can can ask any person of Jewish descent, ancient or modern, even today, and they will tell you that if they're they're up on their, their Jewish history and culture, They will tell you even today that King David was the greatest king to ever rule in the history of Israel. And that King David ruled during the greatest time in the history of Israel. And that King David made a covenant with Yahweh who had promised that one of David's sons would sit on his throne forever. And Matthew's genealogy reveals to us that that son is Jesus of Nazareth. And God proved that Jesus is the true and final king when he raised Jesus from the dead. After Jesus resurrected, he ascended to heaven where he has since ruled the church and the world at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And in his second advent, Jesus Christ will return to raise the dead and judge the world and make all things new. And so because Jesus is the king, God's king, all people... Everyone who ever lived is responsible to repent and believe the gospel. We have the responsibility to do so. To repent means to turn from your sin. It means to acknowledge that you are a sinner and that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. To repent means to agree with God about what he says about you in his word. 
Ephesians 2.1 says that you are dead in your sins. Romans 3.10 says that none are righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's repentance. You have, to be, you have to know that. You have to believe that's actually right or else you do not understand the gospel. But that's only one side of the coin. See, the other side of the coin is, is faith, is belief. You have to repent and believe. And faith in Jesus contains three facets, knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, first and foremost, you must know who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Now, luckily for you, because you've been here, we go through that every single service, every single Sunday. We may not be able to do much here at Christ Community Church, but if you come to one of our services and you pay attention, if nothing else, you will know who Jesus is and you will know what Jesus did. That's our goal every week. But that's not enough. You see, you can't know about it and think it's just a fairy tale. You have to have assent. You have to actually believe it's true. You have to assent to the validity of these truth claims. You can't think it's just a fairy tale. You have to understand that it's history and that there's theological intention. But even that's not enough, church. You have to have knowledge, you have to have assent, and you have to have trust. You have to, you have to transfer your trust to Jesus alone. What does that mean? That means that you believe in your heart and you understand in your mind that if you were to stand before God right now and if he were to ask you, why should I forgive your sins and why should I give you eternal life? That your only answer must be because Jesus died for my sins and my faith is in him alone. That's it. There's nothing else to say. You are not good enough. I am not good enough. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you know what? If you repent and if you believe, you are brought into the kingdom of Christ. That's, that's what he's saying here. That's what the point of this. And this is the only perfect kingdom the world has ever seen. Not Egypt, not Babylon, not Greece, not Rome, not Britain, no matter how great she thinks she is. Not America. The kingdom of Jesus is the only perfect kingdom the world will ever see. And Matthew hints at this. Again, this is where we got to understand what's going on in these genealogies because Matthew tells us that there are 14 generations from Abraham to David and that there are 14 generations from David to the exile and that there are 14 generations from the exile to Christ. Again, this doesn't necessarily mean that there were literally 14 generations between these people and events. Now, maybe there were. But the way ancient genealogies are written, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Sometimes genealogies can be collapsed to make a theological point. The point here is that with these 14 generations, it totals up to seven sevens. All right? I'm not going to get into the weird, you know, some people get weird with numbers. right? We're not going to do that. But this one is kind of obvious with the 14 generations. It's, it's, it's the number of perfection. Jesus' kingdom is perfect. It's also the number of the Sabbath. That the Sabbath happened on the sevens, every seventh day. Seven years, seven sevens. 
In Jesus' kingdom alone do we find the true and final Sabbath rest. That's why we gather for worship every single Sunday, because Jesus resurrected on Sunday, and so the, new, the, the Sabbath was shifted in the new covenant from Saturday to Sunday. We gather every Sunday, church, as an outpost of the kingdom of Christ. Christ Community Church is an embassy for Jesus' kingdom here at 14 in Van Dyke. This kingdom takes root in your heart when the Holy Spirit works regeneration through the gospel. This kingdom is lived out in the church as we administer the word and the sacraments together. It's lived out as we love each other and we serve each other. And this kingdom will be consummated when Jesus returns and he judges the living and the dead and he ushers in the new creation. Tim Keller said, Easter proves that Christmas is real. The manger leads us to the empty tomb, which leads us to the new city in a new world where we will live with Jesus forever and sin and death will be no more. The surprise ending of the book of Ruth is that this love story results in the birth of a baby who is king. And the surprise of Christmas is that the baby in the manger is king. May we be surprised by Christmas this year because Christmas is good news for sinners about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would keep your promise and that your word would not return void. Father, we ask for any who are with us this morning that this would be the best Christmas ever for them and that they would see the beauty of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and that they would repent of their sins and that they would trust in Jesus alone. Father, we pray for your church, for the sufferers and sinners. Lord, for anyone and everyone who is pursuing sin, we pray that you would bring them to repentance, that you would discipline them. Father, we pray for those who are suffering and hurting, for the lonely. We pray for Larry and Virginia Mitchum again. We pray for, for my parents, for Randy and Donna Loganow. We pray for Dave and Cheryl Lee. We pray for Don and Mary Rice. Father, we pray for any others who are suffering physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, Lord, the only rest in this life, regardless of circumstance, is in Jesus. That's it. There is no other peace. There is no other hope. There is no other joy. There is no other love. There is only Christ. So we ask that on this Christmas morning, 2022, Father, for all of Christ Community Church, that our hope would be in Jesus alone. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, rise now and come to the Lord's table.